Hey there, what's up? Welcome back to the Christopher Cabinet show. And I just saw a really funny headline. It is Trump insults his own special master. Okay, on the politics AF here, we're on the roads to locking up Trump. Locking Trump up. Lock, hashtag lock Trump the F up. And anyway, and Trump for prison. I wonder if trumpforprison.com is available. Try this on your friend's pictures. No, you try it on your friend's pictures. Further evidence to the fact he and his team that you can draw at least some connection. This is Christ show, by the way. The Trump intermediaries and Trump himself. We'll talk a bit about that. But the main course here, the gourmet main course, is how Donnie was trying to hide evidence. Trying to hide evidence and arguments still. Still trying to hide them from the people and from everybody in the legal system. And at the last second, what Garland just did was go public with those secrets Trump didn't want anyone to Ooh. see, and they make Trump look even more criminal than he already has. So, <laughs> keepers, does he need to know that they also plan to use violence in order for him to be victim, guilty of seditious conspiracy? No, I mean, it's what we call in the law gravy. I mean, it's like if, the, if, if that evidence does exist, that establishes a seditious conspiracy or at least a conspiracy to commit violence between Trump himself and the Proud Boys who are going on trial right now as we speak. But there are other conspiracies that the January 6th committee has been investigating as well as federal and state investigators, Joy, including mm -hmm. this whole fake electors plot that John Eastman and others uh, cooked up. And there doesn't need to be any overlap between the two. It's kind of an old law, all the way going back to the Supreme Court case in 1943 of Kotiakos. There was just some great news about how, um, uh, you know, prosecutors just need to prove one. And, you know, yeah. at this point, Donald Trump is facing many, many different investigations into many conspiracies. Is it possible in this inquiry by Judge Deary for Donald Trump to take the Fifth Amendment and not answer the question, or was any of this stuff planted? Can you just like do this forever? That is a great question, and so the answer yeah, is maybe. yes. So here, here is the conundrum. This is like the world's worst strategy. If you are a potential defendant and you know that there is a criminal investigation, then you don't want to also be a plaintiff. This reminds me when Donald Trump what? said, you know, I want to sue uh, the New York Times for defamation, and the general counsel of the New York Times said, you know what? Be my guest. Bring it on, because then we get discovery. And, of course, Donald Trump didn't do it. Well, here, by uh, Donald Trump being the plaintiff, he's the one who is asking for relief. So if he were to take the fifth and refuse to say whether any of these documents uh, were planted or not, then his case is going to be dismissed because the burden is on the plaintiff and he will not have fulfilled that. And Judge Deary said that on day one. He said, let's just be real. 
you are the plaintiff. You have the burden. You may have all sorts of reasons why you don't want to submit anything, but then you're not going to win here. And frankly, I think that is Winning ultimately is what's going to happen because, as you said, he's going to. When you're up. a defense lawyer, what you have on your side is very little, except the element of surprise. So that's gone now. And the one thing he can't do is submit something that is false because if he does that, Judge Deary is going to be all over him, and it's going to be just another potential criminal charge because uh -huh. lying to a federal judge would be a problem not just for the lawyers uh -huh. but also for Donald Trump. Uh -huh. So he's really strategically made a terrible blunder. Well, you know, Donald Trump uh, threatened to sue me on uh, through Twitter uh, ten years ago when I first started calling him a liar on this program, and I begged him. <laughs> to sue me for exactly the same reason as the New York Times is that then I get to uh, put him under oath in a deposition. Uh, Harry Littman, uh, what about the intersection of uh, this uh, case now with the so-called Oath Keepers in Washington and what Donald Trump has to fear in what they might or might not raise in their defense? Right. So, look, you, as you said at the outset, Lawrence, there is no valid defense that says the Insurrection Act, I thought it was going to uh, be called into, into uh, you know, play, and therefore that's the reason I had all the gear and everything else. Oh, and the reason of, for all the incendiary rhetoric that was just talk, uh, it, it won't, I don't think it will cut it, but it's bad for Trump because he will be trying to emphasize everything he can about the earnestness with which Trump was communicating to the whole group, maybe through people, that in fact it was, you know, time to uh, to gear up and actually fight the powers that be to, as you say, mount an insurrection. So just thematically, it, you know, it figures to be more bad news for Trump. And it's another instance of what Andrew's talking about. You know, he has just been leading with his chin and getting more and more cabin, not just in court, but in the public sphere. So if, for example, Deary uh, makes him put up or shut up, it will also restrict his ability to be bombastic in public and say, I declassified and all these other things. So the legal system is finally, finally sort of clamping its jaws around some of these claims of Trump and making it you know, harder for him both politically and, of course, legally. So listen to that. There's a couple things there. One, there's this real effort and a growing realization that while it hasn't been proven yet, there are increased... efforts and increased likelihoods to draw a line between the thuggy groups like the Oath Keepers and all of that and the Trump people and Trump himself and that could put them all in increased legal danger. But the big factor here continues to surround Donald Trump's unwillingness to actually make clear arguments, especially in court and in his court filings. And what that shows is how he's setting himself up for real danger just on his own. But that's before what Garland just did, because what he did was take Trump's secret arguments. Trump was only making arguments in secret. He wasn't actually stating them. He had his BS public arguments and then a bunch of secret arguments he was trying to put forward to limit his legal liability and his political liability. And what Garland just did was say, fine, 
you want to play that game, we're going public and we're going to air your dirty laundry, huh. air the evidence like never before. Ha, it ha, says ha. here, new DOJ filing exposes Trump's secret objections and evidence. asks special master to call his bluff. And it notes, King Trump is filing complaints under seal for some reason, but DOJ is discussing it not under seal so we can largely infer what Trump is upset about, the New York Times noted. The filing revealed that Trump's lawyers objected to Deary's request that they verify that the search inventory by the file by the DOJ is accurate, essentially daring Trump's team to assert his dubious claim that the FBI may have planted evidence in official court documents. The DOJ affirmed that its inventory is complete and accurate and urged Deary to require Trump's lawyers to state whether they believe the list of items seized from the property is accurate. Trump's lawyers also objected to Deary's request for them to explain whether they are claiming attorney-client privilege or executive privilege after Judge Cannon, the Trump appointee that ordered a special master review, failed to ask for a distinction. And it's unclear what their third objection was. And so Garland just aired the dirty laundry. We could infer some of this maybe in a speculative way, but what Garland just did is go out in public like never before in official public documents and say, here is the BS evidence and here are the BS arguments. They are spitting at the judge and at the public, the insulting, ridiculous, defenseless arguments they're making. Here it is for the world. Donnie, you've been called out. Now you have to make the case even stronger because everyone knows the BS you're spitting. Garland wanted to keep this quiet at the very beginning. He would have been very happy to do that. But the second you made this a public spectacle, Garland turned it back on you. And now every piece of your dirt is going to be given public scrutiny if it serves the interests of finding justice. Another brilliant move. <laughs> yeah, good job. So, US folks, Senate. I'm... Fighting this in the court. Okay, sedition on trial. Top legal experts. Yay! Live right now. Ukraine's pets. Uh, 
um, they'll be including in their presentation on, uh, on that date. Then we're going to turn to the start, finally, of the seditious conspiracy trial against Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, and uh, nine others um, of his group that are going to trial with Judge uh, uh, Mehta presiding in Washington, D.C. That case is underway. We'll talk about how we got there, the charges that they're facing, and attempts by Stuart Rhodes to delay this trial at all odds, impossible defenses that the media is reporting on uh, based on filings that have been made that we might see to avoid this vicious conspiracy count. Uh, we'll then do a, a very um, a real-time update in the E. Jean Carroll case that you and I just talked about last week, where we talked about the new rape claim, civil rape claim, that Yay. she will be bringing in Good. November when she's allowed right. to. All right, take a look at this. People are Act. vowing they'll never go but back to But there's been a development in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals for New York in um, the, on the question of who is going to be the defendant. Is it going to be Donald Trump or is it going to be the United States of America who has intervened in the case under a uh, Federal Tort Claims Act statute? Well, the Westfall Act, which we'll talk about. Um, and if they are successful in intervening, even though we may not like it, Donald Trump will avoid liability for what Jean, Jean Carroll alleges happened to her in the department store dressing room, um, which was a sexual assault and a rape at his hands and defamation when he denied it. And we'll talk about what the Second Circuit did and what they did not do and what, what we think will be the next steps. And then I'm going to pick your brain, former prosecutor, now that you've uh, had the opportunity to review the New York Attorney General's civil lawsuit and her footnote where she's making a criminal referral to both the Eternal Revenue Service and to the Southern the District IRS. New York U.S. Uh -huh. Attorney's Office, I want to get your, you know, you, you've been very vocal uh -huh. about your disappointment that Alvin Bragg's Manhattan <laughs> District Attorney's Office isn't prosecuting the case. I want to see how really? you feel now that you see that Letitia's uh, is referring the case not to Alvin, but to the federal prosecutors at the Southern District of New York. So let's let's jump right in. Let's uh, kick it off with um, Jan 6th, um, just to give some stats, and then we'll launch right into what we think is going to happen at the ninth and final hearing. <laughs> the Jan 6th committee has reviewed 130,000 pages of documents. They've interviewed 1,000 witnesses. We've only seen a small uh, a small batch of those witnesses with uh, video testimony during the prior um, eight hearings. Um, and, you know, each hearing has had a theme. It's chaired by Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney. This will be likely Liz Cheney's last hearing since she lost her primary. Um, no surprise there. And Adam Kinzinger, the other Republican didn't run for office again. So the two Republicans on there making it bipartisan will not be on any longer. I th they're on for as long, I believe, as the report will be issued. But we don't expect the report until after the midterm elections at this rate. This is really the last time 
other than an interim report, which they may issue sometime in October, a little bit of an October surprise. Um, this is going to be the last time we're probably going to see this committee live in action in a hearing with witnesses live and taped um, before we get the interim report and the final report. So what, what have you been able to pick up from different sources about what do you think they're going to be focusing on on, uh, let's say, next week's uh, final hearing here? Yeah, so, so the reporting seems to suggest that this final hearing is going to focus on how the plan was to declare victory regardless of the outcome of the election. And then that was the plan, and that was how people were going to all fall into line and uh, do whatever it took to, to do that. And so it, basically Roger Stone, who is a political operative and advisor to the president. Um, he's, his MO has always been attack, 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 you know, never defend your position, just go on the, on the attack and uh, admit nothing, deny everything, launch a counterattack. I mean, that, that's his, his way of being. And so I think that the, they're reporting that the next hearing is going to focus on him. You know, the Danish filmmakers, uh, the documentarians that were following, uh, people around caught him on, on tape and they there was uh, lots of negotiation between the Jan 6 committee and these Danish filmmakers over whether they would be willing to turn over some of their video because you know reporters or or, or journalists uh you know, guard their sources of, at all costs. So they really only turned over, I think it was 10 minutes worth of thousands and thousands of hours worth of um, a video that they had collected. And part of their negotiation was, we'll turn it over to the Jan 6 committee, but we don't want to cooperate with law enforcement because we don't want to get involved in law enforcement. So they were able to get video of Roger Stone threatening violence and spelling out the plans to fight the election results. So he said something, some things like, you know, the F word, you know, F the voting. Um, he says laughing, you know, let's get right to the violence, shoot to kill. If you see an Antifa shoot to kill. Um, so it'll be interesting to see Roger Stone uh, and and what his involvement was in in all of this. It also shows his close the, the, the hearing is supposed to show his close association with Enrique Enrique Tario and Joseph Briggs, who are the Proud Boy leaders, um, who are also simultaneous. Our our other story that we're talking about today is the Stuart Rhodes trial with the Oath Keepers. That's also going to link, you know, all of these. Militia groups that came together uh, to to overthrow the government together and show that they are this giant conspiracy. But it's going to show. Um, I think that's what everyone's saying that it's going to that the hearing is going to be about. It's also about uh, pardons, right? About presidential pardons. I think there was some comment that you know Roger Stone, um, President Trump was the first president to be impeached twice, and, and Roger Stone is going to be the first uh, the first guy to be pardoned twice but, but it's going to um it's going to focus on on uh on on that part of the jan 6 um insurrection and uh that that's at least what the reporting seems to be what what have you what have you gleaned from from everything we've read 
No, I think the Roger Stone focus is going to be front and center, at, at least for part of the hearing. Okay, you guys ready to go you know, back to you? In reading about Roger Stone's, what he called the, the Brooks Brothers stratagem, where he's going to send a whole bunch of Republicans wearing khakis and polo shirts, I guess, or button downs, um, in order to throw a monkey wrench into the gears of democracy. He claims that he developed that strategy in 2000 during Bush v. Gore, where I was in Florida and was active on the streets <laughs> related to Gore exercising my First Amendment rights in watching the county. Constitution Avenue. Um, I was in the home of the Hanging Chad, if people remember that. And, I remember uh, that. And I did a lot. Of, I spent a lot of time in front of I have a document the um, clerk's office, the the uh, election clerk's office in West Palm Beach. But uh, you know that was different. That was um, you know the lesson that Roger Stone allegedly learned from that was that James Baker told George W. Announce your victory, and then we'll work backwards. So you know Gore sat on the sidelines waiting for all the votes to be counted waiting for the Supreme Court to ultimately oh, rule yeah. five to four. That's how the election went in favor of George Bush. It was really five people that elected him president, not the country at that moment. But the, um, the uh, optics, the strategy was for George W. to declare victory. And then, you know, you know, as Roger Stone says in this documentary that the Danish filmmakers did uh, of the um, Oath Keepers called the storm, the storm foretold, he said that, uh, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law. So I'll just declare myself the president. Uh, but, but it was different because there in Bush v. Gore, it was everyone exercising under the First Amendment their right to political speech. There, I was in the streets. I watched the protests. They were um, nonviolent. They were, I didn't agree with the Republican side of the aisle, but I could have a conversation with them um, about it. And ultimately it worked its way through various court processes. And then Al Gore said that George W. was the president and he transferred power, if you will. He told his followers, the Democrats, like me, this is your new president. And we had another peaceful transfer of power. That's different than here. Roger Stone took that lesson to mean that even in the face of an overwhelming electoral victory by a president, in this case, Joe Biden, you could just declare falsely that you were instead the winner to avoid the peaceful transfer of power. That is the exact opposite of Bush v. Gore. Um, his, other, um, his other comment that you mentioned about um, F the voting, let's get right to the violence. You know, it's interesting. I was reading some other things and preparing for the show, and I ran across a definition that uh, security experts around the world and political scientists around the world use um, in warfare. It's called hybrid warfare. And hybrid warfare is defined as undermining democratic functions, disrupting normal, um, normal conduct, and sowing chaos and uncertainty, undermining democratic functions, disrupting normal life, and sowing chaos and uncertainty. Isn't this exactly what That's Donald correct. Trump, Roger Stone, and all the others, aren't they engaged, haven't they been engaged in hybrid warfare against the American people and against this country? Um, I, I mean, my eyes popped open when I saw the definition of, of what 
of what that is. It is warfare. And everybody that was affiliated with it believes it was warfare. And we'll talk about when we get to the road. Roger Stone has a lot of problems. Um, you know, he just curries favor with, like, as you said, the Proud Boys who are up for seditious conspiracy charges of their own. Um, he's close with, um, he's, he's close with uh, Kim Gilfoyle, who is Trump, uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend. So he has a lot of connectivity uh, to the Trumpers. Um, and as you mentioned, he, uh, Bernie Carrick, all got bailed out once before by Trump and were given a pardon. And after Jan 6, you know, he made contact, as you said, with a lawyer for Donald Trump. Uh, one of the lawyers for Donald Trump handling his impeachment hearing, um, David Shaw, and said, hey, I could use another uh, pardon here. Could you help him? Could you help a friend out? And Bernie could use one too. And this is all going to be from the, um, not only the film, Getting this on a um, a better or, speaker. That's how the election went in favor of George Bush. There's only five people that elected the president. Not the president still there? at that moment. But the um, K-A-M-P-K-P-Y-T. The, uh, the strategy was for George W. to declare victory, and then George you know, you know as Roger Stone says in this documentary that the Danish filmmakers did uh, of the. Um, Oathkeepers called the storm, the storm foretold. He said that uh, you know possession is nine tenths of the law, so I'll just declare myself the president. Uh, but but it was different because there in Bush v. Gore, it was everyone exercising under the First Amendment their right to political speech. There, I was in the streets. I watched the protests. They were um, nonviolent. They were. I didn't agree with the Republican side of the aisle but I could have a conversation with them um, about it, and ultimately it worked its way through various court processes. And then Al Gore said that George W. was the president, and he transferred power, if you will. He yeah. told his followers, the Democrats, like me, this is it. your new president. Well, guess what, they're related. another peaceful transfer of power. Uh, That's different than here. Roger Stone took that lesson to mean strange. that even in the face of an overwhelming electoral victory by a president, in this case, Joe Biden, you could just declare falsely that you were instead the winner to avoid the peaceful transfer of power. That is the exact opposite of Bush v. Gore. Um, his, other, um, his other comment that you mentioned You're about after um, voting, bombshells. let's get right to the violence. AF you know, it's interesting. I was reading some other things in preparing for the show, and I ran across a definition.
that uh, security experts around the world and political scientists around the world use um, in warfare. It's called hybrid warfare. And hybrid warfare is defined as undermining democratic functions, disrupting normal, um, normal conduct, and sowing chaos and uncertainty. Undermining democratic functions, disrupting normal life, and sowing chaos and uncertainty. Isn't this exactly what Donald Trump, Roger Stone, and all the others, aren't they engaged, haven't they been engaged in hybrid warfare against the American people and against this country? Um, I, I mean, my eyes popped open when I saw the definition of, of, what, of what that is. It is warfare. And everybody that was affiliated with it believes it was warfare. And we'll talk about, when we get to the Rhodes wow, sedition hearing, what they're going to claim as a defense related to that. Me. But Roger Stone has a lot of problems. Um, you know, he just curries favor with, like, as you said, the Proud Boys who are up for seditious conspiracy charges of their own. Um, he's close with, um, he's, he's close with uh, Kim Guilfoyle, who is Trump. Uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, so he has a lot of connectivity uh, to the Trumpers, um, and as you mentioned, he, uh, Bernie Carrick, all got bailed out once before by Trump and were given a pardon, and after Jan 6th, you know, he made contact, as you said, with the lawyer for Donald Trump, uh, one of the lawyers for Donald Trump handling his impeachment hearing, um, uh, David Sean and said, "Hey, I could use another um, pardon here. Could you help? Could you help a friend out? And Bernie could use one too. And this is all going to be from the um, not only the film footage from the Copenhagen filmmakers, but they also obtained somehow text messages and copies of text messages that the filmmakers had as well. And as you said, I thought it was extraordinary. It's something that's been little reported until the New York Times did recently." The Gen 6 committee went to Copenhagen at some point. You know, and we're like, what, I wonder what they're doing when they're not on television. They're working, and they went to Copenhagen to convince the filmmakers to give them as much footage as they could possibly get their hands on and other documentary documentary evidence, and they did. And we're going to see, I think, the results of that. I think we're also going to see a focus on Mark Meadows and Mark Meadows and uh, Ginny Thomas. I don't know if they're going to wait for Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, who said she's going to voluntarily testify. I don't know if that's going to be this week or next week. I don't know if they're going to have it in time to present it the last. Twenty-three text messages that have been discovered in the Mark Meadows. Um, cache of documents between her and uh, actually 21 text messages between Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows in which she urged him to avoid the peaceful transfer of power and to um, overturn the election results. And I, you know, I think they're, let me just finish that point. I think they're going to mention that. And I think they're going to, whether she testifies or not, or they have video or not, they're going to make this connection while they have the last chance back to Clarence Thomas of the Supreme Court. What were you going to say? I was going to say two things. First, I think your point about a hybrid warfare is an excellent one because it's it's insidious. It's silent. It happens sort of 
you know, it, behind the scenes in ways that happens. <clears throat> And realize and and I think one of the one of the tactics that had been from the beginning with with Trump and Stone and and all the rest of them was to put as many judges to fill as many judicial openings as possible and and one of the things that Trump did early on in his presidency was fill every federal judicial opening I, I read somewhere that he appointed as many as Obama in his entire term in a much quicker time frame because he realized the importance of appointing judges who will support your theories or your positions. And so that was, I think that's that's part of this hybrid warfare, if you will. And I think Roger Stone was counting on just fight this, declare victory, and then let's get in front of judges that we appointed like we did in the Bush v. Gore, you know, get in front of judges and they'll support whatever it is we did. And that, that was part of, of their tactic. So um, I just wanted to underscore yeah. that, that how important that is. And um, thankfully, some of the judges that he appointed are, are upholding the rule of law and not going along with what he's doing. Like in you know, the 11th Circuit, we saw um, support with with the uh, classified documents that two of those judges said no this this isn't we're not going along with what you're saying trump and so thankfully it's it's reaffirming i think a little bit that judges still uphold the rule of law and are not partisan um the only other thing i wanted to mention was uh i was slightly i don't want to say disappointed but i was hoping this last hearing would have the blockbuster smoking gun connection to Trump. And I worry a little bit that the Jan 6 hearings have fallen, to, to some people will feel, um, that has have fallen um, a little bit short in terms of linking Trump directly to this. And that that's what I think drives everyone and myself crazy is he somehow always gets away with everything. But what do you think? What Do you think that that the hearts and minds, I think, I think the Jan 6 committee is one over the hearts and minds of most people that, yeah, the insurrection was terrible and all these people um, are terrible and should be prosecuted. But do you think it's gotten, do you think they've, they've achieved the, the Donald Trump portion of it? And do you, or do you feel like I do a little bit that it's, I mean, yeah, Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas are going to also be hopefully connected, but but the Trump portion of it, I want them to get much more Trump. What do you think? I don't think they've made the case at the Jan 6 committee that Trump has direct liability for all of the bad things that have happened. I think they've made a argument for a conspiracy of which he was a part. I think that was Benny Thompson's initial, uh, Benny Thompson's initial um, presentation, day one, moment one about um, the coup in the making and who was responsible for it. But, you know, as a prosecutor and as a defense lawyer, um, there's a lot of holes in what they have presented. Now, I don't think their main purpose was to prosecute uh, Donald Trump at all. I think it was to do what they were supposed to do, which is to um, bring to light and ultimately to justice um, all of the people at the highest levels of power who were involved in this 
and then the minions that they use um, as the final tip of the spear to attack and lay siege on the capital when all their other strategies and stratagems fail, when all the lawsuits fail, when all the attempts to confiscate election equipment fail, when all of their efforts to get Republicans at the state house to do yeah, their what bidding about the fail, elector scheme fail, when all of these things fail in a multi-pronged approach, the last desperate act was Jan 6th and was lighting the fuse, knowing the crowd was loaded, and pointing that weapon directly at, at, the, um, at the Capitol. That, I know you've said it before also, that is probably the closest we're going to get to Donald Trump um, because he, he knew, having asked for the magnetometers to be removed, to let his people in, they're not going to hurt me, meaning by implication, they'll hurt the Democrats, they'll hurt Nancy Pelosi, they'll hang her, maybe Mike Pence, who I don't like right now either, but they're not going to hurt me. That is probably the closest. But the question is, you know, the, the, the audience for that, for Jan 6th committee hearings, has been uh, multiple audiences, right? What is Democrats like and progressives that, that follow and listen to our show who, who wanted this brought out to light, needed this? You know, a democracy needs to be able to hold hearings like this, and Congress needs to be able to hold hearings like this without favor, without, without any partisan approach to it. We would have done the same thing if this was Democrats leading a potential overthrow of the government. I would have hoped the Republicans would do the exact same thing, and I would be sitting there watching it just the same if, if that had happened. The, that's one audience. The second audience was, you know, sort of independents that were getting their news information from social media and getting a distorted view from Fox and maybe trying to get them to understand what really happened historically and politically. The Republicans, right-wingers, Trumpers are a lost cause. This was not must-see TV for them. They thought it was all political theater and a charade, kangaroo court, whatever they called it. It only solidified them, and they dug in even deeper their heels um, into supporting Donald Trump, that, that whatever percentage that group is in the electorate. But the last audience that we've always talked about is, was the Department of Justice in watching, you know, almost getting a mock trial, right, a moot court um, they got to see how evidence with witnesses was presented. Now, not under cross-examination, not in a courtroom, in a very, con I don't want to say contrived, but very structured, measured way, polished presentation of evidence and getting that evidence into their own hands. So the Gen 6 com committee should be commended for, for all of those things that they've accomplished. I think their final 500-page or whatever it's going to be report boom, that lands on the desk and everybody like you and me scrambles to get a copy of it, is going to be a roadmap for history, for historians, for researchers, for books that are going to be written in the future. And I think it'll aid the prosecutions that are already ongoing. I've always said the most likely prosecution of Donald Trump that's going to be successful, putting aside the Letitia James's civil case, Georgia. which we'll talk about in a minute, is Georgia. And the second one is his screw-up at Mar-a-Lago, by holding on to all of these classified and national defense documents and not turning them over um, and violating the statute. So, you know, I've always thought those were the ones. We'll talk about what you think about with Letitia James's criminal referral to the IRS and the Southern District. But, you know, that's enough speculation on Gen 6. Let's, I don't want to be like those people on television just trying to kill airtime. 
uh, we don't have airtime to kill. We do this because we love it, and, and every moment is valuable that we present on the podcast. So let's um, let's turn over to um, something that is real, that is happening, um, and is criminal justice and justice at its finest, which is um, a group of Oath Keepers, inclu- including their leader, Stuart Rhodes, is on trial right now in Washington, D.C., in a federal courthouse with a jury on the highest charges that have been brought by the Department of Justice, which is seditious conspiracy, the plot against America, and which they face 20 years of um, prison time. Uh, Just to remind our listeners and followers, there have been 870 arrests, but the only people that have been charged with seditious conspiracy are nine Oath Keepers and a group of Proud Boys. That's it for right now. So these are really important important to the Department of Justice. They've already gotten a handful of people, including in the Oath Keepers, who are going to testify to plead guilty to seditious conspiracy. But they have not yet put on a trial where they've asked a jury to return a verdict on seditious conspiracy. So this is a big test for the Department of Justice. They've been, I think there's 7-0 or 8-0 in, in trials, but this is the first time on seditious conspiracy. And you have Stuart Rhodes, um, Kelly Meggs, Ken Harrelson, Jessica Walker, and Tom Caldwell all joined together sitting at a defense table with their separate lawyers being tried. Now, Stuart Rhodes, the leader, tried to separate himself from this trial and filed a motion to bifurcate or have a separate trial because he's like, well, those people... <laughs> they're crazy. They did crazy things on uh, Jan 6th. I didn't do any of those things. I didn't storm the Capitol. I didn't punch anybody or try to kill anybody. I didn't say go at the Capitol steps. I didn't do any of that. But he did so much more as it relates to the planning related to a violent overthrow and siege on the on the Capitol. And he's tried a number of delaying tactics. What, what have you thought about watching Stuart Rhodes in action and squirming as he's had to face his judgment day and all the motions he's filed and the change in lawyers. What do you think about all that? You know, I can't get past the fact that he went to Yale Law School. Every time I look at him and, and read about him, I don't know why. He just doesn't fit the mold of what I picture a, a Yale Law graduate to be. I don't know. It just makes me it scratch my head. But, you know, the, the trial is going to be very interesting. You know, as you said, this is one of the first times in a, in a very, this is a rarely used statute, seditious conspiracy. Uh, it's, it's different than what all the other people are being prosecuted for, um, for January 6th. And it, it's a civil war era statute. Um, and it's basically defined as two or more people plotting to overthrow, put down or destroy by force the United States government. And so it's it's similar to a, just a regular conspiracy in that it requires two or more people to agree or to conspire or to, to come together and have a meeting of the minds. And so that's one of the reasons I think... Um, I think the judge would find that these people can be joinable and, and he's not going to be separated from them because in any conspiracy, you know, you could have two people who agree to rob a bank and uh, and one of them rents the car that's going to be used to drive to the bank and 
then they drive to the bank and then someone else gets out and robs the bank. You know, the, the, the guy who rented the car might say, well, you know, I, I shouldn't be prosecuted for robbing the bank because I didn't actually drive there and I didn't go into the bank and I didn't rob the bank. So you should separate us out. But conspiracy law is one that says if you have a meeting of the minds or an agreement between two or more people and there's an overt act, meaning something, you do something towards that conspiracy, then you can be liable and prosecuted for the whole conspiracy. So so in that in that bank robbery example, the guy who rented the car agreed with them to rob the bank and rented the car to do that, even though he wasn't anywhere near the bank and didn't go in the bank, he would still be part of that conspiracy and be prosecuted as such. So I think that's what what the the seditious conspiracy um, theory here, why he is joinable with these guys, even if he didn't go into the Capitol and even if he didn't do some of the the things that he did. Um, I, I found this, you know, I had to do a little research on seditious conspiracy because it is so rarely used that, you know, I wasn't familiar with it and I didn't know what the elements were. Um, it doesn't require treason. You know, it doesn't require... Um, you know, treat like like any kind of waging war against the government or or treason. It's just basically where you plot to attack or overthrow the government. So it's it's very interesting. Um, it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. Um, the, there's a is it the same documentarian from? Is it is there was only one? I I am like losing track. I know there's a documentarian that had video of them planning. Uh, and meeting, you know, with, with Rhodes and Enrique Terrio, these two groups coming together. Um, is it the same documentarian or is there more than one that was following around these groups? I think you it's have, the Danish people. I, I, I think it's the Danish filmmaker. Yeah, so I, I just didn't know. I was like, I was like, I was like and, and who 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 allows a documentarian to, I, you know, what is the psychology behind that? Oh, sure, come around and, and video us. And, and I think the answer is what the defense is going to be, right? So I, I talked to my husband, who's a criminal defense attorney, about this case. And I said, how would you defend this? You know, how would you defend? You've got him on tape. You've got, you know, what happened. You've got, it seems very clear, right, the, the evidence here. And what's the defense? And I think the defense here, what they're going to say is, number one, we didn't think we were doing anything wrong, of course. Otherwise, why would we allow a documentarian to follow us around and record us? We thought that the election was actually stolen and we believed it our president was telling us that everyone was saying that and there's millions of people who actually believe it it was on fox news it was everywhere that the election was stolen so we genuinely believed that news. what we were doing was saving democracy Whoa. we were saving yeah, the government we, we weren't trying to overthrow the, the government we thought what we were doing was okay and that's a dangerous defense because you get you get one like-minded MAGA Trump person on that jury, and I think you got a hung jury there potentially. You know, I I, I worry a little bit. Um, I hope they. I just hope they have a good jury because, you know, it's, trials like this or all trials. It's all about jury selection. You know, and and, and the media and and all the TV shows about about Why you know law and order, etc. They never talk about jury selection because it's kind of boring. Um, but any trial lawyer knows that jury selection is the most important part of your whole case because they are the ones who are going to be deciding. There's 12 people who are going to be deciding 
whether you're whether you have met your burden or whether you are right or whose theory it is. And you know, it's it's interesting because the jury selection in this case was was similar to to most jury selections. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a case of this magnitude where they had jury questionnaires and, you know, where they're asking questions, you know, how much do you know about January 6th? And, you know, did you watch the hearings? You know, because people, the, the lawyers are trying to figure out who, you know, who are you on my side or are you on the other side? So it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting um, how this plays out. I, I, I understand that the government has several cooperators, you know, and that'll be, you know, that'll be, very interesting as well. So let's see how it goes. Yeah, they got six former Oath Keepers who have pled guilty, including three to seditious conspiracy that are taking a stand against this first set. This set of Oath Keepers is split into half. And so they're doing half the group now, including two rows, and half the group later. And this is the group that definitely has seditious conspiracy as a charge. I think in addition to what you and Mark came up with on the defense. I think there's two other areas that they'll likely try to use. Um, although I don't think they'll be, at least one of them, I don't think they'll be successful. They may try to use that they relied on their counsel, their legal counsel, about, this goes to your point about, we didn't think we were doing anything wrong. We thought the, the election was stolen. And they were getting guidance, at least mock guidance, from a lawyer a woman by the name of counsel for the Oath Keepers. And the problem with that is I'm sure she was giving them all sorts of advice that fit their, um, fit their needs, what they wanted to hear. But she's been charged with committing crimes by the Department of Justice, not seditious conspiracy. But, you know, if you're going to rely on a lawyer who in either a conspiracy or in crimes against the government, you're in a tough spot. The second thing is, it looks like Stuart Rose, because of filings that he's made in the courthouse before trial, and the others are going to try to rely on the fact that they thought this, I don't know if you remember, Karen, there was, I think the documentarian picked it up, there was like this speakerphone um, conference, telephone conference, with some unknown voice that that looked like it was connected to the president talking to Stuart Rose, and Stuart Rose with, with others was trying to get like the go order, because he already had to remember, Stuart Rose is testimony against him, video against him, audio against him, because of course the government was able to pick up these idiots were all communicating on different um, on different apps, different walkie-talkie apps, and they were able to get all of that audio. But Stuart Rhodes planned and successfully had ammunition, munitions, weaponry brought into the Capitol, waiting at a hotel and other places for this quote-unquote go signal. These, these idiots were yahoos running around on golf carts, but they were going to be armed on those golf carts if they were going to storm the Capitol. Their, one of their defenses appears to be that they thought that Trump was going to invoke the Insurrection Act of 1807, which was in Jefferson's time, which allows, we should really take this off the books, by the way, 
which which allows the president to have the authority to call up the militia to suppress an insurrection. And the statute, which I've taken a look at, we'll put up on the screen, is like a paragraph, less than a paragraph, like, it's like one inch thick, meaning there's not a lot of text there, and there's not a lot of, you know, when you look at a traditional statute of today, it goes on for pages in single space, six point font with, you know, 32 subparts and Roman numerals. And this isn't that. This is like a haiku, it's like a poem that gives the president the power to put down, right, an arm, you know, to put down an insurrection, whatever he refers to or considers to be an insurrection under, you know, calling up a militia. They, and the term is used in that, militia, right, back to the Second Amendment, about a well-armed, you know, well-regulated militia. So what is a militia? It's not the U.S. Army, because the statute would have said the Army. There was an army in 1807. So what is a militia? It's a band of happy warriors, uh, like like the Oath Keepers, that are, that are just weaponized, the president can follow them. So there were internal discussions that we know of among the constitutional scholars around Donald Trump, like John Eastman, like Jeffrey Clark and others, where the Insurrection Act of 1807 came up. We saw it in tweets by people like you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, like almost encouraging Trump to exercise it. So they're going to say, listen, we're just that we were just standing by for hours Listen, it's a D.C. jury, the jury could they get one person? That's all they need to hold out and say, yeah. I think these people are assholes. I think they're terrible human beings. But do I think they committed seditious conspiracy with the criminal mens rea, mental criminal intent? Why no. isn't Let's Fox see. News Let's see the presentation. Is it for anybody on the conspirators in the January 6th insurrection. And 147 GOP traders are. You know, I wish somebody would ask a question. Why isn't Fox News anchors and executives named as co-conspirators in the January 6th insurrection? And 147 GOP traders were... I wish somebody would ask a question. ...and get a hung jury there and didn't get convicted. So... Let's be careful. So I wish somebody would ask a question. Why isn't Fox News anchors and executives named as co-conspirators in the January 6th insurrection? There was a tabloid headline, and I love some certain tabloid headlines that said, from Yale to jail. So let's just hope they're right. Won't be the only one. Sorry, Yale. <laughs> um, let's move on to a, a slightly disappointing story or update, but one I think we need to keep um, and manage expectations and, and keep expectations where they where they need to be. I don't think any any I don't think either of the sides in E. Jean Carroll should be running to the podium to declare victory based on what the Second Circuit just did a day or so ago. So as we so as we reported last week, to remind everybody this has been in the news for the last couple of years, um, E. Jean Carroll, a 
Why isn't Fox News anchors and executives named as co-conspirators in the January 6th insurrection? And 147 GOP traders were... I wish somebody would ask the question, why isn't Fox News anchors and executives named as co-conspirators in the January 6th insurrection? And 147 GOP traders were... I wish somebody would ask the question, why isn't Fox News anchors and executives named as co-conspirators in the January 6th insurrection? And 147 GOP traders were... I wish somebody would ask the question, why isn't Fox News anchors and executives named as co-conspirators in the January 6th insurrection? And 147 GOP traders were... I wish somebody would ask the question, why isn't Fox News anchors and executives named as co-conspirators in the January 6th insurrection? And 147 GOP traders were... I wish somebody would ask the question, why isn't Fox News anchors and executives named as co-conspirators in the January 6th insurrection? And 147 GOP traders were... I wish somebody would ask the question, why isn't Fox News anchors and executives named as co-conspirators in the January 6th insurrection? And 147 GOP traders were... I wish somebody would ask the question, why isn't Fox News anchors and executives named as co-conspirators in the January 6th insurrection? And 147 GOP traders were... I wish somebody would... If Trump is successful in arguing that he's covered by the Russian direction 147 147 147 147 147 147 147 147 147 147 147 147 147 147 and one seven GOP 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 seven to forty seven to forty seven to forty seven to forty seven GOP what happened with the second circuit? The second circuit had an appeal by Donald Trump and his lawyers, and they argued that Judge Kaplan, Lewis Kaplan of the Southern District of New York, who denied the U.S. government's motion to intervene in the case and to substitute in for Donald Trump. That was brought by first by Bill Barr's Department of Justice, but then by Merrick Garland's Department of Justice, who took the position that no matter how disgusting the comment is, he was the president of the United States when he made it. He was refuting allegations that were made against them, which he's allowed to do. And we're going to take the position that that was within the scope of his presidential duties to do that in that interview. Even if he made some other gratuitous comments that we don't agree with, what? we think that... I need to um, stop right here. Legal AF. Top at legal experts react to midweek legal bombshells. Nine twenty-eight twenty-two.
six insurrection. version of a quote detailed property inventory seized by the fbi from donald trump the justice department following the judge's order provided that inventory to the court today and to donald trump's lawyers but the most important part of judge deary's order that he issued on friday says that by friday of this week (laughs) by friday of this week time is up on donald trump and his lawyers because donald trump's lawyers must submit quote a Why list of any them? specific items set forth in the detailed property inventory that plaintiff asserts were not why doesn't the justice department arrest this guy comma the worst criminal in human history comma a year and a half ago question mark please do your job u.s government to protect us and your oath to the U.S. Constitution! Exclamation point. Charge 147 plus GOP traitors who orchestrated the insurrection with Trump, comma, who is Citizen Trump now! Exclamation point. I repeat. Just in case y'all forgot, idiots, Trump is no longer president. He lost. Remember? Question mark. So lock him up. Lock him up. Exclamation point. What are you waiting for? Question mark. Are you chicken? Comma, you must be. Exclamation point. You're too scared to arrest Trump. Exclamation point. Because you know he is a fucking terrorist. Freaking terrorist, excuse me. He is a terrorator. Terrorist. Ex-president. Comma. Who. Doesn't even have it in him to concede to Joe Biden. To this very second. Exclamation point. Lock him the F up. Exclamation point. Throw away the key. Please. Do your freaking job. From the premises on August 8th, 2022. Judge Deary wrote that order two days after Donald Trump said this. The problem that you have is they go into rooms, they won't let anybody near them. They wouldn't even let them in the same building. Did they drop anything into those piles? Or did they do it later? Donald Trump is not going to be telling that lie next week. Donald Trump has been suggesting repeatedly. 
that the FBI planted evidence when they were executing the search warrant. Judge Deary is ordering Donald Trump's lawyers to identify that planted evidence by Friday. Donald Trump's mm -hmm. lawyers will, of course, not do that because they do not want to be caught lying mm -hmm. to a federal judge because mm -hmm. that would be the end of their careers mm -hmm. and they could be convicted of crimes for doing mm -hmm. that. So as of Friday, mm -hmm. because Donald Trump's lawyers successfully brought a special master into the case, remember the special master was their idea, and because they did that, that special master will formally and legally shut down one of Donald Trump's big lies about the FBI search. The Justice Department's final inventory of the search as delivered to Judge Deary today was accompanied by an under oath affidavit by the supervisory special agent with the FBI who was present during the execution of the search warrant. The agent whose name has been redacted from the filing so that Donald Trump's supporters will not try to kill him, says the squad that I supervise had primary responsibility for execution of a search warrant at the premises on August 8, 2022. I was present during the execution of that search warrant, which resulted in the seizure of 33 boxes, containers, or other items of evidence, which contained just over 100 records with classification markings, including records marked top secret and records marked as containing additional sensitive compartmented information. The FBI agent said that before submitting this final detailed property inventory, quote, I and FBI personnel working under my direction conducted an additional review and recount. Have you heard of Executive Order 14067? Most people probably haven't, but it could completely upend American life. You see, Section 4 of this order is set to completely overhaul our entire financial system, replacing our cash currency with a new program of the seized materials in order to make this declaration. That additional review and recount resulted in some minor revisions to the detailed property inventory. The minor revision is a change. Hi there, we're listening to Legal AF today. With only one day's notice, the FBI said there were 47 empty folders with classified bags. 47 now, it's 43 last week. In the inventory submitted today, there are 46 empty folders with classified banners. I believe that's the original count, I believe was 48, and the current count is 46. It was right. two less. Why uh, unchanged in changing? the property inventory is the fact that of most of those empty folders with the classified banners, most of them were found in Donald Trump's office, along with 25 classified documents found in Donald Trump's office. Most of the rest of the material was found in the storage room. Donald Trump's lawyers have until Friday what to dispute any room? aspect 
of this detailed property inventory submitted today. Also today, an excerpt from the New York Times reporter Peggy Haberman's upcoming book appeared in the Atlantic, and it contains evidence of Donald Trump's awareness of his legal criminal jeopardy involving documents he took to Florida. Almost exactly one year ago, uh -huh. on September 16th, 2021, uh -huh. Maggie Haberman interviewed Donald Trump for her book. In the Atlantic, Maggie Haberman reports, he demurred when I asked if he had taken any documents of note upon departing the White House. Nothing of great urgency, no, he said, before mentioning the letters that Kim Jong-un had sent him, which he had showed off so many Oval Office visitors that advisors were concerned he was being careless with sensitive material. You were able to take those with you, I asked. He kept talking, seemed to have registered my surprise, and said, no, I think that's in the archives, but most of it is in the archives. But the Kim Jong-un letters, we have incredible things. What? In that quote, as we reported by Maggie Haberman, Donald mean? Trump reacting to Maggie Haberman's surprise that he has Kim Jong-un's letters with him at home. And after Donald Trump notices Maggie Haberman's surprise... A dictator, not off, fellow dictator. Says, no, I think Love that's letters. in the archives. But this being Donald From Trump... Kim Jong-un. He keeps talking, and he has to post. He says, most of it is in the archives. Most of it? Most of the Kim Jong-un letters are in the archives? Only most? That yeah. seems to indicate that Donald Trump knew then, in September of 2021, of course he fucking before did. anything Duh. had been returned to the archives, that he knew in that moment that the yeah. Kim Jong-un letters were supposed to be in the archives by law. Americans are so fucking stupid. But he stupid. just had to boast that he had incredible things. Yeah. Most of it is in the archives, morons. but the Kim Jong-un letters, we have incredible things. Indeed, he did have incredible things. Yeah. On the day see. Donald Trump was saying that to Maggie Haberman, the archives oh, knew yeah. that Donald Trump had the Kim Jong-un letters. Because the archives did not have them. And Donald Trump, stupidly, had made those letters famous. I got a very beautiful letter from Kim Jong-un. He really wrote a beautiful three-page, I mean, right from top to bottom, a really beautiful letter. We fell in love. Okay. No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters. And they're great letters. We fell in love. And that was the first official notice right there that the archives knew that those letters existed. That's how the archives find out, found out they existed. The archives learned about those letters at the same time we did when Donald Trump said those idiotic things on television, possibly because they're the only love letters he's ever received. We have incredible things. Donald Trump, one year ago, could not resist boasting to a reporter that he had the Kim Jong-un letters. And he did. And in the way that he answered that question, he also made it clear that he knew the archives was supposed to have those letters by law. He said, no, I think that's in the archives, but most of it is in the archives. But the Kim Jong-un letters, we have incredible things. 
<laughs> Leading off our discussion tonight, Neil Katyal, former acting U.S. Solicitor General. He is an MSNBC legal analyst. Bradley Matt Moss is with us, a national security attorney. And Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor, is with us. Yeah, uh, and Neil Katyal, I was struck by the you, Maggie Haberman quotes of a year service. ago from Witness Trump. Now, if there is an audio tape of that, and I'm not sure if Donald Trump allows her to tape their conversations, uh, but if there, if there is, that is something that could be subpoenaed in this case. Uh, but the, the way it's reported by Maggie Haberman, it, it appears that Donald Trump realizes in mid-answer by her surprise that he's not supposed to have these. But we know that he did have those at that time. Exactly, Lauren. So a crime requires two things. It requires a bad act and a bad criminal intent. And what Maggie Haberman's reporting is suggesting is that there was a bad criminal intent as early as a year ago, September of last year, that he knew about these documents and the like. And then today we're learning more evidence of the bad act because, you know, Trump does turn out have incredible things, and not just in his storage room at Mar-a-Lago, but in his office itself, Lawrence. So in his office, and you said this briefly, but I just want to pick up on it, seven top secret documents, 17 other highly classified documents, 43 empty folders that contained classified information. Now look, if I had seven folders in my Justice Department office, that or seven classified documents, top secret ones, in my office... You'd be arrested. Heading down a lot of different paths trying to find election information. Get straight Still treat to the them with Anybody else would be treated. This is what, um... This is what I wrote. Why doesn't the Justice Department arrest this guy, the worst criminal in human history, a year and a half ago? Please do your job, U.S. government, to protect us and your oath to the U.S. Constitution. Charge 147-plus GOP traitors who orchestrated the insurrection with Trump, who is citizen Trump now. I repeat, just in case you forgot, idiots, Trump is no longer president. He lost, remember? So lock him up. What are you waiting for? Are you chicken? You must be. You're too scared to, to arrest Arant. To arrest him, it should be. Because, you know, he's a fucking terrorist, freaking terrorist, excuse me. He is a traitor, traitor, terrorist ex-president who doesn't even have it in him to concede to Joe Biden to this very second. Lock him, it says, like him the ass up. <laughs> Lock him the F up. Throw away the key, please. Did I, uh, submit myself? Uh-oh. Okay. Um. So, like, all puppy. Yeah. You need to be in a sensitive, in jail. information facility in order to look at those documents. 
and bring it around and certainly not to your office in Florida. And remember, it wasn't just that he's found with these documents in his office, Lawrence. He had these documents were part of a search warrant that was executed after he had sworn through his lawyers that he had returned everything. This is what they found after that. And so it's obstruction, it's false statements, it's so many other things. And his lawyers are thick in the middle of it, which makes them both targets of the federal investigation, most likely, and also opportunities to flip against Donald Trump himself. Clinton Kirshner, as a former federal prosecutor, what do you see in the Maggie Haberman interview stacking it up with the evidence as we know it? You know, I see Donald Trump making admission after admission, all of which are statements by a party opponent, which is not hearsay. We introduce those kind of statements in criminal prosecutions all the time. And I will tell you, Lawrence, as an old career prosecutor, a trial guy, I see all of Donald Trump's admissions, like the ones to Maggie Haberman, as evidentiary gold. And I keep waiting to see when some prosecutor will be able to plant her feet in the well of a courtroom and argue to 12 people in the jury box, sitting as the conscience of the community, and begin presenting this evidence. But there is a prerequisite to us getting to that point. It's an indictment. And as Neil said, if he had, if I had top secret documents, I handled an espionage case as an army jag with a TSSCI clearance, and I was scared to death I was going to say or do something that might inadvertently run afoul of the rules by which I had to abide. You know, we would be in jail. I've had secret split. Um, so I await the Department of Justice to get to a point where it believes the time is right because this is only a timing issue. The evidence is there. I worked at the uh, State Kirshner, Department. Uh, this puts your, many, many uh, people's lives at risk. Experience working with the FBI on search warrants and inventories of search warrants to get your reaction to the adjustment that they made uh, today in the new version of the inventory. Uh, they said that uh, Judge Cannon in the original order for a more detailed inventory, they only had one day to do it. Uh, this time they had a lot more time. And in their recount, the big change was uh, instead of, I believe, the total number in the first one was 48 empty folders marked classified, and now it's 46 empty folders marked classified. Uh, what is your reaction to that with your experience? I never tried an error-free case. I tried lots of murder cases, RICO cases, all in the courts of Washington, D.C., both federal and local. I never had an error-free investigation, and myself, I never tried a case without making a handful of mistakes, and I would own them when I made them. Um, so I am not at all surprised that with the number and nature of doc. No matter who you are, being yourself can be tough when you have severe asthma. Triggers can pop up out of nowhere, causing inflammation that can lead to asthma attacks. But no matter what type of severe asthma you have, expire can. Documents and then the kind of search, the far-reaching search that's being conducted. There are a lot of hands that go in to processing a crime scene. There are often corrections made to what you know the the officers, the agents, the detectives believe they seized on the scene. This is is par for the course because this you know it, it is a human endeavor. 
our criminal justice system. So you're going to have mistakes. Uh, Bradley Moss, uh, with your experience in, uh, as a defense counsel, imagine yourself in the, the, the Trump lawyer's uh, meeting room tonight uh, discussing what do we say on Friday uh, to the question of uh, what was the evidence that was planted by the FBI during the search? Sure. If I'm those lawyers at this point, assuming there isn't some evidence we just don't know about that hasn't somehow leaked out these salacious details, they're not going to be able to file anything showing that evidence was planted. What they're going to try to do is the same thing they try to do on the classification side. They're going to try to sort of pivot and kind of kick the can down the road a bit, saying to you know to the extent that we have all the information at the moment. We don't have anything specific to provide the special master, but we reserve the right to supplement if additional information comes available that we can provide. So we're not ruling out that there will be something at a later time. But at the moment, we're not obligated to do anything other than say, here's what we do know. Here's what we don't know yet. Is it possible for a special master in a situation like this, who's obviously taking in what Donald Trump said on Fox uh, two days before he issued that order, is it possible for him to issue some kind of gag order to the parties in a case like this? It's certainly possible, but I think there's so many First Amendment interests at stake that I think it's not very unlikely. I think what Judge Deary, the special master, has done so far, Lawrence, is to basically tell Trump, look, it's time to put up or shut up. And we're not going to let you peddle these absurd conspiracy theories without evidence to back up what you're saying. And to put it bluntly, you know, this special master has become a nightmare for Trump. And the icing on the cake is that Trump did it to himself. So as a lawyer, Lawrence, my first rule is always like, be careful what I wish for. Be careful what I'm asking for on behalf of my client. Because Trump could have just peddled his absurd theories about the planted evidence, about declassifying in his mind, about how the Justice Department abuses his rights. But he instead insisted on saying all that and then asking for a special master. And now that special master and the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, our nation's second highest court, has blown past all of these Trump defenses saying, look, this whole question of classification doesn't matter. There's no evidence whatsoever that the Justice Department is abusing your rights. And now for this last piece in the puzzle, this planted evidence, Judge Deary is saying, hey, tell me about it in a sworn document by Friday. And I suspect, as Bradley says, they're not going to be able to do that. Katyal, Bradley Moss, and Glenn Kirshner, thank you all very much for starting off our discussion tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And those of you who are parents in the room know that the best thing you can do for your child is to not give them everything they want, right? Kirsten Cinema is not one of the parents in the room. <laughs> Note to Senator Cinema's speechwriters, most parents are not open to parenting advice from politicians who are not parents. In fact, they're not open to parenting advice from politicians, period. <laughs> Needless to say, Senator Sinema's parenting advice was every bit as bad as you would expect from someone who has no idea what she's talking about. Yeah. And those of you who are parents in the room know that the best thing you can do for your child is to not give them everything they want, right? And that's important in the United States Senate as well. We shouldn't get everything we want in the moment. Because later, yeah. upon cooler reflection, you recognize that it has probably gone too far. So the importance of the 60-vote threshold is to ensure that no one gets everything they want.
that you compromise, that you find that middle ground. And by doing so, you're much more likely to pass legislation that stands the test of time. By the way, I'm running for Senate against Kirsten Cinema in 2024. Comma, so I am down and open to interviews regarding a counterpoint to the hogwash that Kirsten Cinema spouts exclamation point. She is obviously bought and paid for by the big pharma and other special interests comma to be so deviously opposed to scrapping the filibuster comma a racist relic of the Jim Crow era Reverse. To the tune of $750,000 just from one to be exact, comma, and for her Outrageous betrayal of the public's best interest, comma, and Arizona voters must not stand for it, period. Replace Kirsten Cinema with a real progressive exclamation point. Vote Trista 2024. Oust Cinema. Kick her out of her cinema seat. Comma, she can barely be bothered to show up. Comma, she can barely be bothered to show up anyway to vote. Exclamation point. Well, maybe that's why it doesn't happen. Except, of course, 
for tax rates. Whenever Republicans control Congress and the White House, they cut tax rates, and then whenever... Even the Democratic Party of Arizona censured Senator Sinema, exclamation point. She doesn't vote with the Democrats at all, exclamation point. She votes with the Republicans every time, exclamation point. regain control of Congress and the White House, they raise tax rates. And so it happens. And the country survives. Senator Sinema wasn't finished. What she had already said about the 60-vote threshold was indefensible. She is apparently one of those people who likes to follow the indefensible with the crazy, which she did. So not only am I committed to the 60-vote threshold, I have an incredibly unpopular view. I actually think we should restore the 60-vote threshold for the areas in which it has been eliminated already. We should... Stop, drop, and roll. One more time. Say it with me now. So just remember, if you're on fire, stop, drop, and roll. Say it with me now. So just remember. Everyone likes that. Um, because it would make it harder. It would make it harder for us to confirm judges. And it would make it harder for us to confirm executive appointments in each administration. But I believe that if we did restore it, we would actually see more of that middle ground in all parts of Irresistibly smooth chocolate to put the our governance, which is what I believe our forefathers intended. Well, our forefathers, she calls them, intended that women never be senators. Our forefathers intended that women never have the right to vote. Our forefathers did not intend for a place called Arizona to be represented in the United States Senate. When the founding fathers were writing the Constitution, the place we now call Arizona was Spain. And the authors of the Constitution expected it to remain Spain. In 1821, when Mexico secured its independence from Spain, the place now called Arizona was in Mexico. And the United States took, when the United States took that land as the spoils of war, which is how we got Arizona, the Arizona Territory eventually became the 48th state in 1912. Pretty late in the game. But that was the same year that a constitutional amendment finally overruled the Founding Fathers and allowed United States Senators to be elected by the voters of the state instead of the state legislatures as the founders wanted it to be. So, if Kirsten Sinema really wants to do 
what she says our forefathers intended. She would be working very hard to take the election of senators away from the people who voted for her and give it back to state legislatures. And she would be staunchly opposed to a 60-vote threshold imposed by the Senate because the authors of the, authors of the Constitution, whom she so admires, were very specific about the Senate conducting all, all business by simple majority vote except for treaties, which they specified in the Constitution require a two-thirds vote mm. in the Senate, mm. and conviction and impeachment trials in the Senate, which the Constitution also specifies require a two-thirds vote in the Senate. The number 60 never appears in the Constitution, but it seems to live in Kirsten Cinema's imagined version of the Constitution. If a simple majority... Mm. Right. Oh, ...is a dangerous and fickle threshold, for governing in a democracy, then why should only five members of the United States Supreme Court get to decide the final interpretation of the law of the land? Why doesn't Senator Sinema advocate a six-vote threshold in the Supreme Court instead of a mere majority? And why is the United States of America the only country that has a 60% threshold to win a vote in a national legislative body? Senator Sinema went to Kentucky to deliver that speech at a government-funded university at a place that calls itself the McConnell Center. Senator Mitch McConnell has effectively purchased the naming rights by delivering federal funding to the university, which of course includes taxpayer money obtained in the much richer states of New York and California. The United States Constitution says that the president shall nominate and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court. The Constitution does not say that Mitch McConnell shall prevent a nominated Supreme Court justice from even being considered by the United States Senate for its consent as Mitch McConnell did to Merrick Garland in the last the year of the Obama presidency. He does it with laws as and Mitch well. McConnell didn't need 60 the votes to do that. Today, Kirsten Sinema traveled to Kentucky to celebrate Mitch McConnell's okay. constitutional vandalism and her own relentless ignorance what? by saying this about Mitch McConnell. While we may not agree on every issue, we do share the same values. <laughs> and we will be, after this break, we will be back with the question of what Vladimir Putin is learning. Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis has a migrant problem. His problem is that he doesn't really have a migrant problem, which, as he reportedly told Republican donors, is a competitive disadvantage should he find himself in a Republican presidential primary against Texas Governor Greg Abbott. In order to appeal to Republican voters, DeSantis has to get himself into the Trump zone on immigration. So he had 50 Venezuelan refugees flown from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, where he promised them there would be jobs and other financial support for them. Ron DeSantis is now facing a class action lawsuit <laughs> for violating the civil rights of those victims <laughs> with that stunt. The lawsuit alleges that Governor DeSantis designed and, and executed a premeditated, fraudulent, and illegal scheme centered on exploiting this vulnerability for the sole purpose of advancing their own personal financial 
and political interests. Jose, one of the refugees deceived and abandoned by Governor DeSantis, told the Washington Post, I tell you how I felt. I want to cry. I felt destroyed inside, tricked, frightened. I didn't know if they were going to put me in jail, if they'd deport me. I just wanted to get to Philadelphia. I don't like the way they treated us. We're human beings. We know that God did not For create sure. us to be equal to men. Oh you my God. Women are different than men. Yeah. I gotta get this on. Kill him. Fucking horrible. I'm working on this kid. I'm working on to defeat her. Um, I have a suggestion for the Democrats, Arizona Democrats and Mark Kelly to um, help help Katie Hobbs because it's too close man it's too close should be should be no con um, contest but I have a you know I think I think Katie Hobbs needs a makeover too Why any Arizonan would vote for Carrie Lake is beyond me! Exclamation point. Slash. She's an election denier. Uh, I always spell her name wrong. It's K E R I. So fake. Carrie Lake is so fake, comma. She's an election denier. A Trump humping Nazi apologist who would. Overturn 2020 elections, exclamation point, as if that's possible, even, exclamation point. She would be down with throwing women in jail for having an abortion, semicolon. She is a threat to women's health across the straight state comma she would be a disaster for Arizona comma and get yourselves to the polls or else it's gonna be too late exclamation point Vote Katie Hobbs, vote 
Okay, T. Hobbs. Fucking Trump Humpers. God damn. God damn them. They should all be fucking disqualified. P.S. In my opinion, they should all be disqualified. P.S. In my opinion, all election and deniers should be disqualified from the these midterms. Exclamation point. And if it were up to me, 147 plus GOP traders would be removed from office rather than running for re-election. Running amok. For God's sake. <laughs> I knocked her baker. Oh my gosh. Hi, puppy dog. How was the ride? Oh yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially with my uh, kind of like uh, <laughs> omelette kale thingy. My bob. Shaking What's shaking for me, Well, Captain Black is there. Captain Black. What's it? Of, of, of legal, uh, legal, uh, serious legal problems that he's going to be facing. I think there's a growing more understanding serious from legal Americans the better, that man. he's going to be held accountable. Keep him busy. Yeah, and it's heartening, <laughs> is it not, to see that so 80% of Republicans still anything. believe in the rule you know, of law, whether it's Donald Trump or someone else, that if you commit a crime, ha, 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 there are consequences ha. to that. Even if You can't even find a lawyer. Ha, 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 ha. Because he don't pay his lawyers. So the only lawyer that would do it is uh, he insisted on. Yeah, sounds like liar, huh? <laughs> yeah. liar, lawyer. Liar, lawyer. Almost liar. the same thing. <laughs> um, yep, that's what they're. He had to pay a three million dollar retainer fee uh, for this guy to agree to represent him, and um, <laughs> which was pretty uh, well, you know. You would think that other lawyers would also demand that, um, you know, like Giuliani, he, um, he owed his ex-wife $250,000 and, um, he didn't show up to a court date. And so, uh, he has an arrest, out, a warrant out for his arrest. Ah, ah, ah. This is current events? Yeah, yeah, Giuliani. Giuliani, there's a warrant out for his arrest. I thought you'd enjoy that. Isn't that kind of fun? Fun to know. <laughs> to me, it's just propaganda. Scheidenfreud. Just to... Uh, Scheidenfreud uh, show. Keep the... Uh, <laughs> Show alive, talking, <laughs> talking about it. Oh yeah, no, it's Giuliani. Yeah, no, it's, no, it's lawyers. Uh, you know, they're biting the dust. Like this, the um, 
his most recent lawyer, she was, she'd never done a um, case before involving the government. <laughs> she was like a, she yeah. was a um, landlord tenant <laughs> lawyer. And, uh, <coughs> and she signed for the, um, you know, the first time the FBI came and got like 12 boxes of the, of the, the top secret documents, you know, this is before this August 8th so-called raid, yeah. you know, lawful search, raid. basically. Raid! Hundreds, hundreds of documents, thousands of, you know, I hear hundreds, I hear thousands, there was like, um, of, um, classified documents, uh, some of them involving the nuclear secrets of another country, you know, they don't we don't know which one. It could be Israel. It could be fucking China. It could be any, any. You know, and all these people are they're compromised because the names they're the names of you know informants and stuff. You know, sources are given in those now empty folders. There's forty, forty-three, forty-nine empty folders, empty classified folders. Like, what do you fucking do with it? Another narrative problem. 
you know, while they want to be dismissive as this was just a storage issue with Mar-a-Lago, the American people don't see it that way. And so how do you narratively uh, translate that so that you don't get on the wrong side of their attitude when it comes to the ballot box in, in four or five weeks? So there are a number of things that are playing out here with the committee coming, the January 6th committee coming back in front of our television screens uh, tomorrow. This narrative picks up a little bit of hiccup with uh, Denver Riggleman and his revelations. Uh, um, about phone call records at the White House. Uh, but I think they're going to seize that narrative back. Um, and this is going to proceed and really, I think, make for an interesting fall um, narrative relative to the campaign is if people continue yeah. to digest this in the way that they have so far, uh, it will be interesting to see whether or not this weighs on their vote just a little bit more than you would think they, that they're saying right now. So, Anne, after January the 6th, uh, I thought you wrote a really important article for The Atlantic talking about attempting to bring some, <laughs> some of these Trump supporters, some of the more extreme Trump supporters, back into the mainstream of American politics, America back down. into uh, involvement uh, in, in, in democracy. We've been looking at polls over <laughs> the past six months, over the past year, uh, that show... Uh, at around the edges, is some some Americans Lord, becoming more skeptical of Donald Trump. I'm wondering what you're seeing. Some former supporters. I'm wondering what you're seeing now uh, it, in these numbers that we've been discussing, and 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 also just general attitudes of Republicans uh, about whether we're moving in that direction or not. Whether there may be yeah, enough Americans okay. skeptical of what Donald what Trump has do. done <laughs> since the election. Um, we have a majority now saying that he committed a crime, uh, that, that perhaps what you wanted to happen is slowly beginning to happen around the margins. So there's clearly a kind of hardcore that doesn't watch the January the 6th hearings, that dismisses them as illegitimate, um, that's very resistant to any kind of persuasion. Um, but what the January 6th hearings did really well was use the language of Republicans, and especially of Republicans who'd worked for Trump, to tell the story. Uh, and this seems to have been a deliberate idea. They, um, they, they, they made Liz Cheney the center of the, of, the, of the panel. She was one of the primary speakers. But also the interviewees, the clips they used, Trump's children, Trump's employees, um, other Republicans from, from Congress. They were telling the story, and because they are um, trusted messengers or more trusted messengers or could be trusted messengers anyway, um, for Republicans, it does seem that some of them were listening. Um, this, is a, this is a hard problem, how to reach people who are in a different information bubble or who reject, um, you, know, re you know, who are rejecting what's being told to them um, by even media like this one, or maybe even particularly media like this one. Um, and so finding ways to reach them is something that a lot of politicians are, should be spending more time doing. And I was really glad to see the January 6th committee took that into account. They were trying to write the story. They were trying to tell it in a way people could understand. And as I said, especially using the language of people who work for Trump himself. And that was, a, that was an attempt to um, reach people who would normally not listen. Well, and, and, and you know, Willie, what I always tell my friends who will generally talk about the mainstream media, it's a, it's a read the Wall the Street mainstream Journal. media. Rupert Murdoch. Read the editorial pages of the New York Post. Like, they, they will... 
uh, you know, I won't agree with what, what they say uh, all the time. But again, look at some of these Murdoch things. Look at if, if you're talking about how the election no, was rigged. you look at some of these Murdoch even things. go on the website of Fox News and see how Fox they reported the election. News, they're, get they're, it? It's, it's not Fox like you have News. to go. Um, to if, if you don't want to come to this network or you don't want to go to, to CNN, you certainly <laughs> can get media outlets uh, that, again, are, are controlled by people who have a very conservative worldview. And even, especially the Wall Street Journal, the news gathering side of the Wall Street Journal is as good uh, as uh, any media outlet in the world. And, and so there are those options, but... Some people are just lazy. Uh, some people just want their re, their their prejudices and their pre-existing beliefs reinforced. And so, you know, they'll look at Facebook pages that are sent to them by conspiracy theorists, or they'll go on to crazy websites that are run by third parties who Facebook have absolutely no credibility at all. Cambridge Analytica. Well, you just put your finger on it. The people so who want target, to have their views confirmed will find and, uh, that confirmation somewhere, but there's no excuse for not having the facts. There are all beliefs, those places you just described. Beliefs. January 6th committee meets again the, tomorrow. Uh, we'll carry that live on MSNBC, of course, coming out for the first yeah. time with a hearing in two months. With targeted ads. Like if you, you know, there's a lot of crap about that, you know, fucking Hillary's emails or whatever. Now you see, um, <clears throat> there's mad about, uh, oh, well, there's the same guy that's in the Epic Times advertising campaign, the one I think, um, that my friend and I both we think he's Russian and it's it's like a front he's like the presenter for Chinese Chinese um pro Trump organization. The Falun like a media arm of the Falun Gong, which is like a um you know, in China they're like a very persecuted group. There's lots of persecuted groups in China. in China, yeah. There's a million, um, uh, oh, what do you call that? Uyghurs. The Uyghurs. They literally kidnap them, abduct them, steal them, you know, uh, and take them away from their <clears throat> homes and bring them to these camps. And, uh, they, they call it, um, re-education camps, basically concentration, concentration camps. And they take away their language. They don't let them speak the language. And they make them into good Chinese families, right? They Chineseify them. Indoctrinate For them another Chinese part of this culture. story, let's bring in NBC News Homeland Security correspondent Julia Ainsley. She has exclusive new reporting about the investigation into the Secret Service response on the day of the January 6th attack. Julia, good morning. So we know that the yeah. January 6th Select Committee will have another hearing tomorrow, the first one in a couple of People months. And we expect so, anyway that some so of these text messages may be part of that presentation from the Secret there. Service. Our viewers will Just remember a couple of months ago the Secret Service said those texts were lost in a systems <laughs> upgrade. What else did you find out? 
Well, I learned that shortly after the DHS Inspector General said that the investigation into those missing texts was criminal, the Secret Service actually handed over 24 phones of agents who were involved in the events surrounding the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Now, we don't know what was found on those phones. We understand they're still in the possession of the DHS Inspector General. We also understand that some of the Secret Service agents were, frankly, a little bit peeved that their superiors came in and took their phones, but they do, in fact, belong to the government. They're Secret Service property. They handed those over, and there may be other communications that the DHS IG could get. They're doing forensic analysis on these phones, but I also think it's speaks to kind of the black hole that the DHSIG's Joseph Kafari's investigation has fallen into. We heard a lot about this after the last uh, batch of January 6 hearings ended around July. That was a big topic because we wanted to know more about what the Secret Service was saying, particularly after we heard Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. Then we understood that those text messages were missing and that the DHS Inspector General had launched a criminal probe. But really, we weren't able to find out the nature of that probe, why it was criminal, which statutes might have been violated, and why they launched that in the first place. All we knew from the Secret Service was that they believed that those text messages were gone as part of that systems upgrade. Now we understand there's actually been more probing, but it remains a big question about what Joseph Kafari is doing, and we actually learned as recently as last Friday that some of his own employees think that he isn't doing enough and is sometimes standing in their way to do thoughtful independent and thorough investigations. So a lot of questions now arise about what exactly that investigation entails into those missing texts and whether there might be a chance that we could see any of the communications that those agents would have exchanged that day, since we now know 24 phones are in the possession of Kafari's office. Uh-huh. Well, that was my follow-up question yeah, to you, Julie. Either those texts are. were erased Secret or they weren't. They Is there a suspicion yeah. or a hope by the investigators anyway that some of them... You know you know how, like, all their e- all their uh, communications were wiped um, for the Secret Service what, for, and, for and DHS and the Department of Defense. They were all wiped um, even after the... The government told them to keep the uh, keep them for archives. Like, what were they like? All the communications, all the text all messages from, the, from January sixth insurrection. Yeah. Oh yeah. They they were they disappeared somehow. Um, yeah, exactly right. It wouldn't it should be like the the heads of those departments. You know, nothing good, nothing, they're responsible for all the, everything that happens in, under their, yeah, right? Conspiracy, right? An obstruction. Yeah, well, can, um, can that information be retrieved? I bet there's some way for that information to be retrieved. <clears throat> you know, hackers would know how to do it. <laughs> Get a team. That would be a Tony. That would, May have great, been. Uh, that would be a great challenge, like an academic challenge or something, you know, to see, uh, see if... Uh, you know, put a, 
make it a competition. Give a million dollars to whoever can um, retrieve <laughs> the the hackers that, <laughs> that can retrieve the information, you know. <laughs> you know, have like a... Hey, Tony! Reserved somehow on these 24 phones that were turned over? Yeah, I think that's the hope, or if it's not text messages, perhaps there's other information that you could get from these phones. But basically, it looks like it got to the point where they wanted to get in and see for themselves what kind of systems upgrade would have taken out all of these communications across all of these phones. And so now they're trying to see if there's a way they can get into it. Remember, there was this big question about whether or not we say erased. It wasn't that they had been manually gone in and deleted all these texts. But according to Secret Service, when they did this systems up, Upgrade, they had restored everything basically back to factory settings. But we did speak about this at the time right here on Morning Joe when we talked about the fact that the Secret Service did ask its employees to take some measures to preserve those communications. So yeah, perhaps I there's mean, something that can be saved um, as part of this investigation. But again, there's so they, many questions uh, about what exactly failed. the Inspector General might be able to get and why we've heard so little about fired, that investigation that is apparently criminal. Yeah, January 6th, one date whose messages you may want to preserve. NBC's Julia Ainsley 